Global Capital Podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Global Capital Podcast. I'm Ralph Sinclair and I'm the editor of Global Capital. And I'm John Hay, Corporate Finance and Sustainability Editor. Now this week we're going to be talking about what might just be the last golden opportunity for oil and gas firms to use equity capital markets and uh, we'll explain what we mean by that in due course. But first of all, unpredictability is back in the primary capital markets. Certainly, the markets look very different to how they looked uh, last year, at pretty much any point. Um, but they also look very different to how they looked last week. Um, and this is to do with interest rate volatility, with interest rates set to keep going up, with high inflation persisting. Yes. Yeah, so this week, Ralph, um, at one point, the 10-year bond yield touched positive territory for the first time since May 2019. Um, so how's that affecting high quality issuers? Well, that, that move in itself uh, is probably more more symbolic uh, than anything else, but it was notable, like because you as you say, it's the first time it's been positive um, in three years. Um, again, another interesting part of the backdrop was even the European Central Bank, in the minutes of its December monetary policy meeting, and those minutes were released this week, has stopped describing inflation as transitory. It's at 5% in the Eurozone, and that's much higher than its 2% target. And what that has meant is that long-dated bond issuance has gone by the wayside. No one wants to own those bonds while rates are rising because the price of those bonds will move around a lot more for a given rise in rates compared to shorter-dated bonds. Um, this was particularly exemplified in the covered bond market, which is these bonds issued by banks, which are secured on mortgages. They carry a very high credit rating. ABN AMRO tried to execute a 15-year deal at the start of the week. It succeeded, but it certainly didn't shoot the lights out. Um, and then later in the week, Raiffeisen Bank had to pull its own attempt at a long-dated deal uh, before it was able to price it. Um, instead, what succeeded were much more defensive trades. And by defensive, you can read boring. Um, and surely there is nothing more boring than a Canadian bank bringing a five-year covered bond. And... One did, in fact, a couple did, but Bank of Montreal did it and in the process managed to bring the largest uh, new issue the covered bond market had seen in 16 years. So that shows you about the uh, the shift in demand patterns. Um, last week in the podcast, we talked about how certain sovereign, supranational and agency borrowers were able to bring long dated debt. Well, they didn't try it this week at all, um, despite last week's success. Yeah, it's it's very much the investors are loving the short end of the curve and and being very uncomfortable about the long end. Um, and, and you know, as you say, the the Bank of Montreal trade being uh, swelling to two, two and three quarter billion euros um, is it, it, it exemplifies that and everybody being excited about it. Um, the in, in the corporate world, it's similar. We've had a, quite a lot of deals where the, the issuers issued two tranches of bonds, a, a shorter and a longer one. And the generally speaking, the shorter one is the one that attracts uh, the more attention. But interestingly, there there are some cases that, that buck the trend uh, uh, where there's a, li a little more demand for the longer one. And those tend to be sort of particularly liked issuers, you know, high quality one or one that are expected to improve in credit rating 
and their investors are willing to take the extra risk um, to, to get the uplift. And how has the week played out then in the corporate primary bond market, John? Well, it's been it's been rather a gloomy week. Um, the, the the market this year has been has been extraordinary, extremely busy. Last week was uh, the the 10th or 9th, according to some uh, sources, busiest week ever in European corporate bonds. And if you strip out uh, several that were done that were sort of panic, panic issuance weeks during COVID, it it was the fifth busiest. Um, And and this is without any particularly big deals. You know, the no monster M&A funding. This is all just sort of regular sized deals. And that's issuers rushing to the market to get in before interest rates rise. And w- one of the things is that there's been an, an incredible preponderance of, of real estate companies coming to the market because they're particularly sensitive to uh, interest rates rising. And and investors and, and even bankers are getting rather fed up with, with this uh, endless stream of, of, of property companies. So this week was there was definitely slower issuance. People said it wasn't really because issuers were staying away, um, but but you know it was actually a sort of quite welcome uh, slowing in pace. And I think without that, the market would have would have sold off quite a lot. But um, but still, kind of very heavily real estate dominated. So uh, nobody nobody very excited about this week's activity. And actually, there was there was quite a bellwether situation where you had Intermediate Capital Group, which is a private equity and private credit fund bringing a sustainability-linked bond tied to getting its um, portfolio companies to adopt science-based targets. Now, this is really quite an innovative and exciting uh, sustainable finance structure, which in, in a good market, I think, would have done extremely well. But the issue has struggled to, to get it priced. It wasn't able to tighten the pricing uh, and only got a book, you know, slightly bigger than the deal size. So it, it was a real sign of the sort of... Uh, market where investors are happy just to sit out and do nothing. Well, that really does show the change between uh, last week and this, doesn't it? Because last week we were uh, discussing how a lot of corporate issuers were happy to slap a green label on their debt or do something yeah. that was other ES- otherwise ESG themed uh, to get deals over the line, because that always appeals, it seems, over the last couple of years to investors, but but not so this week. Yeah, well, it, it's true. That, and, and, and generally speaking, the, the greenium, as it's called, will 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 remain. It's it's going to be enduring. But but um, the as as we, one of our journalists wrote in an opinion article this week, um, the the greenium is is quixotic, right? It's it's going to. Uh, you, people shouldn't expect it to be regular and, and quantifiable and always there. It, it, not not all deals are as green as each other, and even in the green market, you get um, you know investors have have sort of uh, times when they have had enough of certain things and want other things, and um, so it's going to go up and down. Hmm. Um, now another corner of the uh, primary markets that. Uh... I wouldn't say is struggling, but certainly is sort of feeling the feeling the rough ride that everyone else has experienced is the emerging markets. Um, not only is uh, issuance there very tied into what's going on, especially uh, in the dollar market and rate rises are expected there and the uh, US Treasury yield curve rose this week. Um, but there are extra wrinkles there too, aren't there, John? Um, can you uh, sort of describe some of the other things that are going on to affect um, affect issuers in that market well of course we've got this awful situation uh in where russia is threatening to invade ukraine which is sort of 
fairly horrific and putting people off any sort of um, bond issuance from that part of the world. In Kazakhstan, there was a, an uprising. So that that market is out as well. Turkey's got uh, problems with the sort of apparently crazy monetary policy of cutting interest rates uh, in the face of inflation. Um, and those those are sort of three significant regions. But but I think the the overall picture for emerging markets is 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 very interesting, and and it goes much beyond those local situations. And this is that uh, the the market is is obviously very exposed to rising interest rates. So you might expect um, issuers to pile in, uh, as they've been doing very strongly in in Europe. But the odd thing is they haven't been, and the um, you know, some of these issuers are, are sensitive to paying high new issue premiums. They don't want to pay over the over the odds to issue debt, and they feel it's sort of unfair on them. And um, so, so a lot of issuers, particularly in Latin America, have been just staying away from the market. And issuance there is half what it was um, up up to this point uh, last year. So that's fourteen billion dollars down. And um, people are wondering why com- countries like Colombia. Uh, which has got $5 billion to borrow this year and an election coming, why they aren't getting on and doing some of it, because rates are probably going to be higher. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because they some borrowers have taken a different view. Um, I mean, I think the, the, an important thing to say is that, um, yes, we're certainly hearing that there are a lot of mandates for bonds that have been awarded um, from emerging market borrowers where the deals haven't actually appeared yet. But um, those that are coming to market are having a bit of a bit of a mixed bag. Um you mentioned Turkey. There was a, a Turkish uh, corporate issuer that came to market this week and sort of it didn't go great. And, uh, you know, some of the bonds, they weren't able to tighten pricing or they weren't able to get the size that they wanted to get. And you mentioned premiums. And now, yes, um, this feels like a bit of a dangerous game for emerging market borrowers to play. Romania took a pragmatic approach and paid a 35 basis point new issue premium to issue debt this week. Um, often we hear that emerging market borrowers are always waiting for things to get a little bit cheaper for them to borrow. But with the state of the interest rate backdrop and the world as it is, that's, that doesn't seem like um, necessarily a safe bet that things will improve. Yeah, I don't think it is at all. And and Romania is probably wise, I think. Romania, it should be said, is, a, is described as, an, as a darling of emerging market investors and for it to pay 35 basis points was was you know a sign of 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 just how tough things are out there there was a very interesting comment in one in one article by um by a banker who said that um you know there's there's only so far you can go uh with emerging market issuers of paying higher new issue concessions to to come to the market he said you know after a while it just begins to look desperate it's like dating (laughs) <laughs> and um, I think I think that is probably how, how quite a lot of it, issuers are, are feeling at the moment. Well, yes, indeed, John. Um, it's it's notable that you know Romania. I guess there will be some issuers out there that don't want to pay thirty-five basis points of premium, or certainly any higher. Um, certainly, we've got the sense in the story that issuers are kind of at their limit as far as premium is concerned. But you have to ask what's what's better: um, an extra twenty basis points worth of premium now. Um, when you consider that since January, the uh, yield on the 10-year US Treasury, over which your bond will be benchmarked, has moved from 163 up to as high as 190 at a certain point. So um, not clear what saving they're making by waiting. 
Yeah, it, it may be just uh, a matter of pride. Yeah. Uh, now, sticking with um, emerging markets, John, or at least the developing the developing world, you've um, written an interesting story this week about um, a way to funnel private capital from the developed world into developing world problems. Can you explain a little bit about that? Yeah, so this is really interesting. If you think about climate change and what we need to do to 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 tackle it and also the sustainable development goals and the you know the campaign to really end poverty and and lift the the parts of the developing world that are still um you know re- really suffer from from poor health and education um it, it's um the, it's clear that uh, the money needs to be spent in the developing world right that there's huge investment needs there and and you've got in 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 western countries a lot of money where the investors say they they want to help with these issues um and and you know have explicitly committed to supporting sustainable development goals but they won't they won't go and put their money where it's needed because it, they see it as too risky and they don't have the right sort of instruments to to channel money into the front line of building say you know solar farms in kenya or whatever and um so so th- this is a huge problem that policymakers have been wrestling with um and and one of the channels of course for for money from the western world to go to the developing world is the multilateral development banks and indeed the national development banks of of various countries but they are limited it's a sort of channel that can't get much wider because they've got limited amounts of capital the national governments are, are parsimonious about giving them more capital um so everybody wants them to kind of get more private sectors private sector investors to invest with them but it's, it's proved rather difficult to do and there's been a, a a new venture announced this week called ilx which is a fund uh, where a dutch pension fund apg is going to invest 750 million dollars um, and they're going to invest alongside development banks in exactly the same sorts of loans that they make. And so, how does the um, how does this mitigate the risk for the the uh, private capital? Does the uh, multilateral bank are they are they going to cover? Are they going to guarantee the uh, the private portion, or how does it work? No, and that's the that's the great thing about it, because if if the development bank was guaranteeing the risk, it would be just like them issuing. Um, you know more of their ordinary bonds and it wouldn't increase their bandwidth you know because they'd still have to use capital to cover that risk the great thing is the apg is going to be investing like a sort of um brother to the development banks in 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 the same um in, in exactly the same way and and the risk for the risk mitigation for the pension fund is that it trusts the the underwriting capability of the development banks and and it's looking at their track record the fact that over years and years they haven't uh lost much money um indeed their critics say that they they are too conservative um so it's an asset class that yields about two to four percent over LIBOR it's not it's not you're not going to make a killing out of it but it's um it's a stable reliable sort of lending and very attractive to pension funds which want long-term return and they want to make development impact yeah it's an honest living um yeah yeah all right great well the one corner of the uh, capital markets that we haven't spoken about yet um well there are probably a couple but the main one we haven't spoken about yet is of course the equity market and um 
We spoke this week to Victoria Teeler, our equities reporter, about uh, a golden opportunity for oil and gas funds and also a bit about the uh, IPO market this year. Hi, Victoria. Um, You've written this week uh, an opinion piece, which is very interesting. You think you may have spotted um, a golden opportunity for uh, the heaviest of polluters to raise capital and uh, possibly it's their last chance. Can you tell us a bit more about it? Yeah, it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's so counterintuitive that in the middle of um, everybody talking about ESG, um, this this window should open up. Um, But actually, if you kind of look at all the factors coming together, um, I mean, Oil and gas stocks have been pretty unpopular for about the last decade. Um, if you look at the the index, it's very flat. Um, and then the pandemic hit, and of course, it all it, it plummeted to the lowest since uh, since the nineties. Um, but then, with the recovery coming and everybody having a pretty high demand suddenly for for oil, the the price has started rising, and so did the stocks. So, Victoria, that rise in the share prices of oil and gas companies, um, does that extend to other types of company as well? So if you look at the market as a whole, at the moment, we seem to be in a bit of a sector rotation. Um, So all these growth stocks, a lot of tech titles that were popular last year have underperformed. And now people are looking for for value. They're looking for cyclicals um, as well with with, um, the economy still going up, but inflation fears coming about. Um, so, so the the oil stocks and the oil and gas stocks and also mining titles um, at the moment have outperformed the the stock six hundred. Um, but they're still, if if you look at the the oil price increase, they're still underperforming that. So now that investors are kind of looking more at these kind of cyclical titles again, they suddenly just look like really cheap stocks with some promise of going up further. Why do we think they've not performed as well as the oil price would suggest? Yeah, that's that's the questions I've also asked uh, in some interviews. And one analyst phrased it quite nicely. He said that it's the ESG risk premium, because, of course, this is on, on everybody's mind. It was a big talking point through the last year. But I think now the situation has changed a little bit um, because it's the ESG topic was a big topic before inflation and the disappointment in growth stocks became a thing so i think now people are are looking at that with a bit of a different eye again well this is a really interesting moment for investors isn't it because um on the one hand they've all been very public about as as john uh, alluded to um in the introduction they've all been very public about their esg mandates and what they're willing to fund and what they aren't um and there can be no doubt that the big polluting companies, there must be something of a secular shift away from providing them with capital directly, at least as far as their traditional activities are concerned. And yet now we have cheap assets that are going up. Um, that's, that's too good to resist, isn't it? I think I think that might be the case. I mean, the oil, gas and mining that is coming to an end at some point in the future. But at this point now, our economies still need a lot of it. So it won't be gone tomorrow. And of course, a lot of these, it it makes sense for some of these companies to raise some capital now because they will have to transition if they want to survive. 
So they might just need that money and now might be a really good and maybe the last really good chance for them to raise it. So, Victoria, have we seen any sign of um, oil and gas companies coming to the market yet? We haven't really seen any capital raises, but on the other end, it's also quite early in the year and they just seem to be coming back into gear in generally this week, in general this week. But there has been a relatively large uh, block trade, a Romanian government fund sold 200 million euros in shares in Omvi Petrum, that's a Romanian oil and gas company. So maybe that's a that's a first first hint at what's coming. Well, perhaps plenty more uh, deals to come then uh, as the year progresses. But let's uh, have a talk about what sort of IPO market these companies might be coming into. Um, Can you set the scene for us, Victoria, and tell us uh, a bit about how um, investors emerged into January? What what uh, what was sort of driving their thinking about what happened last year? So at the end of last year, we kept hearing the word fatigue a lot. Um, Investors were a bit overwhelmed with this large number of deals that were coming to the market and especially one of the some of the early growth titles really didn't perform so well uh, throughout the year so they're a bit bruised by that they if you bought all the ipos last year you made an okay return but nothing super exciting so at the beginning of this year investors aren't that excited and keen to look at a huge number of companies again um and just uh, hand out their money <laughs> to to everyone. So they really want to do some more due diligence um, and really look at the companies, understand the story. That's what that's what people tell me. So do you think it'll also affect the kind of IPO they want to look at? Yeah, definitely. So one problem is, or if you want to call it a problem, there's still quite a bit of a backlog from last year from IPOs and some issuers still seem to be quite eager to come to the market and um, raise some capital. So we expect another quite busy year. And of course, if there is a lot of IPOs, again, investors have to select quite quickly what they want to look into if they want to be more thorough. And a very easy way to cut it off and, and decide which ones to look for is size. So what quite a few people bring up is that investors are really looking to concentrate their their investments and just look at fewer but rather larger deals and companies on the market this year. But isn't that always the case, Victoria, that they prefer bigger deals? Yes, of course it is. You could make the point that they usually prefer those. But this year, especially in the contrast to last year, where people were re- were really excited about growth stocks and tech stocks and some more unusual things for Europe, and with the situation having changed with inflation fears and um, interest rates rising, it's just a, a significant contrast, I think, in this year. And it's a bit more pronounced than usual. But if there's going to be a concentration uh, of big investors into big IPOs, that's not the only um, positive development we've seen in the IPO market, has there? There's been quite a lot of um, activity at the lower end of the scale. Yeah, it's quite interesting because at the complete other end of the market, in the small cap sector, people are actually quite bullish. They say that small caps tend to outperform when the economy is going up, which it is. And they also seem to be a bit more resilient. IPOs of small caps seem to keep going when the larger cap world IPOs are getting a bit more difficult because it seems that investors are a bit less worried about liquidity and some short-term trends, and they're 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 happier to stick with them for longer term. It's, it's, yeah. 
they are of course like quite different markets aren't they it's it's not as if uh, the huge global asset managers is going to start piling into every small cap ipo that they see yeah exactly it seems to be quite quite separate strata of the market so what happens to poor little piggy in the middle um what happens to the mid caps they are looking at a bit of a difficult time i think um they will have to have very very convincing stories i think to to woo investor in those scenarios and those stories have to stick out quite obviously so they will have to communicate them really well so that they don't just get filed with all the others that we're not going to look at because there's so many and we want to look at the biggest ones hmm. that's really interesting um are, are there any other factors that could f favor small caps do you think um, yes, there is. This is something one strategist mentioned to me that last year, because the euro lost in value quite a bit compared to the dollar, this benefited large caps. But this effect, it, it didn't hurt small caps, but it benefited large caps more. And this effect is not expected to be as strong this year. So relatively large caps will lose that benefit that they might have had while small caps do well in the, in the increasing, in the growing economy. It's interesting as a as a direct um, result of the, the the relative changes in interest rates, isn't yeah. it? So yet again, um, the interest rates are found to be uh, at the bottom of everything. So much to keep an eye on across the capital markets in the weeks and months ahead. And you can follow all of these developments, as well as read the stories discussed on this podcast at globalcapital.com. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free every Friday. Just search for us on your favorite podcast provider. Uh, it just remains for me to thank Victoria and John for joining me for the podcast this week, and to Gerald Hayes, our editor, for stitching it all together. We'll be back with more from the capital markets next week. So thanks very much for listening, and goodbye. Goodbye.